0: It's good to be with you. You know, a new year, um, I don't know, I don't know what, I don't know if I can think of any notable New Year's sermons that I've heard. I'm sure there have been some, but it seems like it's always a significant thing to decide, okay, New Year, what are we going to do? What are we going to talk about? What's, what's, what's going on here? And I could think of nothing better a few weeks ago. Um, than to begin the year with just, just one of the most essential dynamics of the Christian life, which is the dynamic of grace. Um, and hopefully, grace, the message of grace, the grace of Jesus, the grace of the cross comes through every single sermon. If, 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 if parts of our sermons every week sound identical, that's by design. Uh, hopefully not in a boring way, understandably if it is, though. Uh, but we want the grace of God To be something that is just on the tips of our tongues every time we gather and every time we're in small groups and every time even just friendships among this community are out having coffee or whatever we want grace to be at the center of everything because grace is at the center of the heart of god grace is at the center of the christian life um there's this story uh and i i couldn't i didn't have the book on hand it's been a long time since i lost my copy Um, I found the quotation online from the book, but I couldn't track down if there's like a footnote or or, or something, so I hope this story is true, but um, in one of his books, Philip Yancey records this story. Um, I'll just read this. I'll read how how he teased this up. This is from Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He says, during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was true to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities. Is it the incarnation? Well, other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form. Was it the resurrection? Again, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. What's the rumpus about? He asked. (laughs) That sounds like very C.S. Lewis. We don't use the word rumpus enough. (laughs) What's the rumpus about? Lewis asked. And heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. Lewis responded, Oh, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. Um, hopefully, if you're a believer, you, you believe that Christianity is uniquely true amongst the world religions. Um, but is, is grace the thing that essentially distinguishes it from the others? Maybe. Either way, You don't find it a whole lot of places, other than the cross. Um, And uh, truthfully, we honestly, many of us, we just prefer other things other than grace, uh, because they're simpler. We, we, We might prefer things like karma, cause and effect, things where you know if you act a certain way, you'll get this result. And if it's a God, you know if you do the good things, He'll reward you. If you do the bad things, He'll punish you. And at least things are fair and square and simple, right? I think on some level, many of us, we almost just, we gravitate towards that because it's at least understandable to us. It's at least predictable, at least can give us some sense of rhythm and routine. But grace, grace can produce misunderstandings all its own and strange reactions in people. Two things. One, tireless striving. People can can react to the Christian message with tireless striving and the kind of, building yourself up by your bootstraps or whatever because we don't often believe, even though we hear, yeah, yeah, grace, I know the grace, I know about the free gift of God, even though Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That being the case, we still don't really believe oftentimes in our heart of hearts, down in the core of who you are in in the innermost place, we don't believe that God is actually really that generous, really that gracious, really that loving, really that kind. Um, so we think, even though we might affirm grace with our lips, and the ways we actually live our lives, we're tirelessly striving to earn his love. Tirelessly striving to earn his love. Because if we stop for a second, then maybe, we, maybe we'll lose his love. Maybe we'll fall out of favor with him. Maybe we'll fall from grace, as the phrase goes. Grace can also produce something you might call lazy presumption. Because we often take grace as license not to pursue him as he's called us to. So um, we can subconsciously begin to think that grace somehow overwrites the commands of God. So there's a lot of commands of God in the New Testament, even specifically the New Testament. Think of the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' kind of trademark signature sermon where he lays out the ethical vision for life as his community of people in his kingdom. It's a lot of laws. It's a lot of do this, don't do this. Right? So we can begin to think though that if we really understand grace, like, oh, well then surely those laws are kind of meaningless or irrelevant or we don't really have to do that or this or whatever and we get muddled on that. We begin to think that our obedience actually has nothing to do with how he's going to extend his loving, healing rule into our lives and into our communities and into the world. The scriptures don't talk about, or I'm sorry, the scriptures do talk about free grace, the free gift of God, but we often degrade that into what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, cheap grace, presuming on the grace of God as an opportunity or an excuse to actually reject the very things that God is calling us to. So these two reactions probably make sense to both of us. Even if you've been a believer for some time and you've got this concept of, yes, God is gracious. The way I am saved is through, his, through faith in him. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Yes, got it. Got the tattoo or whatever. Like, I understand that. But I'm guessing that most of us, myself included, I can speak, I'm not guessing, I know. Myself included, I find myself drifting into these two sort of diversions from grace. Sometimes, effort, like striving Tirelessly to achieve his love, or just lazily presuming that I've got his love and that I don't really have to do anything as a result. Um, We don't know what to do with grace often. We don't know how to sit with it in its fullness. So I thought today, as we kick off a new year, I want to keep it short, I want to keep it simple and I want to just help us look at a passage that I think speaks into the relationship between all of these things and how grace is meant to actually work in our lives. I can think of no better way to kick off a new year than just with that simple message. Here's grace, and here's what we do with it. So, Philippians, Philippians chapter three. This was written by the Apostle Paul. And we'll, we'll, uh, I'll, I'll fill in a little bit of context as, as it's required here, but I just want to read this passage for you real quick. Paul says, he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. I'm not perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So I just want to take this in in three three parts here that I think will help us kind of make sense specifically of the idea of grace. First of all, the first verse and a half, verses 12 to the first part of 13. Here we see Paul highlight his present imperfection. And this is the same Paul who preaches, I mean, he, he wrote so many of the New Testament books. He was a pillar of the developing Christian church and, and the theological world that it birthed. Um, he knew grace. He knew grace. He was influential. He was one of the key foundational leaders that got the church off the ground. Um... But he himself, he himself starts with this kind of interesting thing. He says, I have not obtained this. And what does he mean by this? Well, we'd have to go back and look at verses 10 and 11, give some context. In verse 10, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. If by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So what he means, I'm not saying I've obtained this. What he means by this is becoming like Jesus in his death. And in his resurrection power, becoming like him, even in the resurrection, coming into a state of perfection. Coming into a state of perfection. Paul is saying he has not arrived as a Christian. Again, it's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul himself. In process of writing Christian scripture, spirit-breathed Christian scripture, even he says... I've not arrived, I'm not perfect. You know, one of the goals of the Christian life is what theologians call cruciformity or being conformed to the image of Christ. And when we talk about salvation, salvation is a word that comes up all the time in the church. Saving, God's saving grace. What does it mean for God to save us? They're all, I mean, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks talking about all the different aspects of salvation. But I want to talk about three just very briefly. Number one, we could talk about the fact that Christ has saved us, that he has justified us by granting us his righteousness before God. So that's something that's happened in the past. If you you are a believer in this room, at some point, you placed your faith and trust in Jesus, and he did save you. You were saved. You were saved. He justified you. He granted you his righteousness before God. Past. Presently, we can say, it's right to say that he is saving you. He is saving me. We could talk about that a number of ways, but one of those is through the category of sanctification. He's sanctifying us over time to become more and more like him. Paul puts it, Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, 29. He says, for those he he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Or in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Or Colossians 3.10, you have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He is in the process of changing you and changing me to look more like Jesus. That's what he's up to in your life as long as you live it in this world if you are in him. And that's part of what it means that he is saving you right now. But then third, that's past, there's present, and now future, he will save us. We talk about this all the time. We are in a state of anticipation. We might have Jesus, and there's nothing greater than having Jesus in this life, but we're waiting. And we just talked about it with Advent. We are waiting his second coming. The hope that we have in the scriptures is that Jesus is coming back to wipe away every tear, to set every broken thing right, to eliminate sin from the world, to end every instance of evil and injustice and all these subcategories of what the Bible calls sin. That's what's going to happen. He will complete his work both in the world and in you specifically. Because remember, Part of the whole story is that we are all infected with this thing called sin. And even though we're new creations in Christ, it's still in there. The old man is still in there wreaking havoc. We are still contributing to what is wrong in this world, in God's good world. But we have a promise that he will save us. He will save you. He will complete the work in us. And that will happen when he gives us that final victory over death, when we are raised Into newness of life. No longer to have this this sinful flesh, but a perfected resurrection flesh flesh like the one Jesus had when he walked out of the tomb. So he has saved us, he is saving us, he will save us. Those categories are important because, you know, if you flatten all that, you can begin to get weird, you know, weird thinking about how this all works. Paul recognizes with all these different elements going on, that he is not perfect, nor is he expected to be right now. He still has far to go. He has not and will not arrive until he's standing face to face with the Lord. He has not arrived and he will not until he's face to face with the Lord. So if that is the case, if you can acknowledge that, I'm not perfect now, nor am I expected to be, then Paul is free, as he does here, he is free to acknowledge his imperfections. Paul's not scandalized by them. He doesn't have to pretend that they aren't there. He can just rest in humility knowing that, look at that, Christ Jesus has made me his own. Even as I am right now, even as I was, when he he appeared to me on the road to Damascus as I was just walking away from killing Christians, killing the disciples of Jesus, he made me his own in his grace. He can rest in humility knowing Christ has made me his own regardless of how far he is from perfection. And so, if you're in this room, do you struggle with tireless striving in your walk with Jesus? Either now or at some season in the past, perhaps some season in the future, do you live in a state of anxiety that Jesus is just always on the verge of abandoning you? And maybe that's happened to you in human relationships maybe a parent, maybe a friend, maybe a spouse, maybe a child, maybe, I don't know, some mentor or something has abandoned you and you begin to think like that's just what people do. That's, what, that's how every significant relationship is going to end. Do you fear that with Jesus? Do you struggle to acknowledge and confess your sins because you've got to pretend, you've got to, you're in this game where you've got to pretend that like, you've got everything together and that you don't have any issues or struggles or whatever? Well, like Paul, if you are in Christ and you're under his grace, there's freedom here to admit your shortcomings without anxiety, without scandal, without fear of rejection from the God of the universe. So make no mistake, he knows every intimate detail of your life, he knows your highest joys and he knows your deepest shames and the most heinous acts you have ever committed for you and for me. And he says, I want you. I love you. Even your darkest day, maybe that was a week ago, maybe that was six years ago, maybe it was 20 years ago, maybe it's going to be tomorrow. Jesus still, he sees it with perfect clarity, more clarity than you even have, more clarity than even the victim of whatever it is that you've done or are going to do or whatever it has. He says, I still love you. And of course, that doesn't excuse any behavior or whatever, it doesn't paper over trauma, of course. But the point remains, if you are in Christ, you will never be rejected by the loving, gracious God of the universe, amen? So you can lay down your tireless striving that you're enacting to to earn the love of God and somehow justify yourself before him because you'll never do enough and he's not asking you to. That's one piece of what we see here. He can readily admit in humility his present imperfection. But We keep reading. We keep reading. And this can seem a little contradictory as we keep going. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So right after acknowledging I'm not perfect, I have so far to go, I have not made this thing my own. He says, I'm gonna strain. This is, this is like athletic competition language. I'm going to fight hard after the prize, which is the upward call of God in Christ. And he sees these two things going hand in hand. What's the thing that he does? Well, it's, it's kind of a dual motion here. One is forgetting the past. And if you'd read a little bit earlier in Philippians, you'd see he was, he's talking about leaving behind anything that might have allowed him to rest on his laurels previously. He talked, this is that passage where he talks about all his kind of credentials as a Jew and as a Pharisee. He's like, these mean nothing to me. In fact, I count them all loss. So he's reasserting that here. I'm, I will forget everything, any accomplishment that might have given me reason to just be self-confident in what I've accomplished or who I am or my history, my family, my education, Whatever. So it's forgetting what's behind, and it's just straining forward toward, pushing forward toward the call of God, which are the tasks before him and these promises of Christ, even this idea that, that yes, he will be made perfect one day in Christ. So for Paul, the ready acknowledgement of your present imperfection and, and not even needing to pretend that you've got to be perfect this side of the resurrection can somehow sit comfortably with this idea of fighting and striving and grasping after the call of God. So how does this work together? How does this work together? Because it seems like Paul is sure not calling us to sort of lazy presumption here. Like oh yes, yes I've got the grace of God so I'll just sit back, I'll just chill how do we make these things fit together? How does Paul make them fit together? Well, that's where the final verses come in, I think. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal also that to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The key that unites these ideas, humble recognition of imperfection, but also Serious striving toward holiness and toward the call that God has placed on your life. What reconciles these things? Only grace. Only grace can do that. In verse 15, we're, we're not going to focus on it right now, but verse 15 is amazing. Don't, let's not, we're going have to have to a little bit, you know, not plumb its depths, but Paul has this really interesting thing where he says, look, some of you are not going to, you're not thinking the same way I am about this. You're gonna disagree with me? And he basically is like, I'm not gonna pick a fight with you right now. He says, but God will reveal that also to you. So he's acknowledging that even in this like, okay, how do we make sense of this? How do we sort this all out? That the God of the universe bends down to reveal to you what you need to grow into maturity. And we talk about that. We talk about, yes, we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Yes, we're being sanctified, but just, t- just deal with that for a second. Like the God of the universe will reveal whatever you need to grow into this kind of maturity. He bends down and he, has, he will not leave you in the mess, but he will teach you. He will, he will speak to you. He will lead you. He will guide you. What a privilege. That is a monumental act of grace right there. He makes the move to come and bring us what we need to grow. But then verse 16, I think, is the key. And that's a phrase, that, uh, verse 16 is a verse that you can read that and, you, and it might not strike you as particularly powerful or whatever, but I, I, this is one that's just floored me ever since it, it, it really hit me, which I think was like sometime in college. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is, this is it right here. What have we attained? Well, he's already mentioned that Christ has grabbed hold of him. And if you're in Christ, Christ has grabbed hold of you. And that means that you have attained, according to the scriptures, the forgiveness of your sins, past, present, and future. You have received welcome into the family of of God as an adopted, beloved son or daughter. You are a child, you are an heir of his family. You've been granted victory over Satan and death. Christ has made us his own. We are utterly secure in him no matter what. We have attained these things. So he wants you to see that this is where you sit secure, never to be taken from you, never to be stripped from you. And then he says, given that, live up to it. Isn't that interesting? Out of that security, you are a child of God that can, that title can never be taken from you. No matter what you do, no matter what you do, that can never be taken from you. out of that security, out of that peace, out of that joy, out of that gratitude. He says, just hold true to it or conform to it. And you know, we we talk about marriage a lot uh, because because the Bible the Bible holds up marriage as this earthly picture of 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 this similar heavenly reality. You know, marriage is not the end point of humanity. Um, if you're never married or whatever, like you're losing no dignity, you're you're not missing out on anything uh, that God necessarily requires of you or whatever. Um, there is incredible dignity and power and kingdom value in your singleness. Um, Jesus was single. Paul was single. Um, single is not second class. Nonetheless, part of marriage is function is to be this earthly picture, this image of some of these deep heavenly realities that we, we ought to not ignore. And this, and, and this is one here. So if marriage is to, be a, is, is to signify the Christ and the church, is to be the picture of what is it like, how, how Christ and the church relate to one another. And we can think of it this way. Think about marriage. Marriage, if you're married in this room currently, presumably, I hope, Your spouse has committed before God, before your family, before your friends. Isn't that what a wedding ceremony is? It's a public declaration before God and neighbor that these two people are making a covenant commitment to one another no matter what. The traditional wedding vows are so timeless and so powerful and so important in sickness and in health. Even if poverty comes, no matter what happens, this is my vow to you. This is my vow to you. And there's two ways to think about that. One is, you know, and sadly, and the, the, this first one's a reality all the time. It's, okay, if you're, if, you're, if you're married, your spouse has made this commitment to you. One way to think about that is, great. No matter what I do, they're stuck with me, right? No matter what I do, they're stuck with me. I can do whatever I want. I'm just going to do whatever I want. Oh, they don't like this? I don't care. They're stuck with me. They've committed to me. If they, if they leave me, they'll be shamed or whatever. They'll be shamed by their family or their church or whatever. Like, they're stuck with me. It's to presume upon this radical thing that this person has done, in an act of grace and love and commitment, you're basically taking it and, and abusing it. That's one way to respond, and plenty of marriages respond that way. Plenty of marriages are where both partners are doing that to one another, and it's corrosive. It's corrosive. It it, it becomes this incredibly, like, destructive, toxic relationship. But there's another way. There's another way. And that is to see this commitment that your spouse is making to you. They have committed to me no matter what. to cherish it, to see it, to see the degree to which you have been and are loved, the degree to which this person has said, even if I go off the deep end, even if I lose the plot, even if I'm sick, even if I can't make any money, even, you know, whatever, even if I lose all my hair when hits close to home. they love me they're committed to me how could i not want the absolute best for them how could i not lay down my life to serve this person how could i not give everything to them in both of these scenarios the end results the same you've got a marriage and it's going to stay together these people are committed but in one it's it's this, it becomes this twisted, like, almost nightmarish thing. In the other, it becomes the most beautiful relationship. It becomes a picture in its own way, not the exclusive way, but a picture, of heaven on Earth. It becomes a picture of what Christ is like with his bride, the church. if you truly understand the degree to which you have been and are loved, and I say that to all, if you're in Christ, you are truly and deeply, fundamentally loved by the God of the universe and he has committed himself to you no matter what. That's that's just the truth of the matter. If you can understand that, that you never have to earn it, you didn't earn it when you came to faith in him, and you're sure not earning it now, and you're not gonna earn it six months from now, no matter how holy and how righteous, or whatever, how many times you read your Bible and pray, how many acts of service and kindness, how much money you give, whatever, you will not earn it, you could never. If you can appreciate that, see it for what it is, see him for who he is, ironically, then, you will be the most free and the most joyfully motivated to respond to him with love of your own. It's precisely because you don't have to, to earn his love, that you get to and you will. That's the whole logic of grace in the Bible. It's the whole logic of this God throughout human history who has acted first. When we've turned our backs, he has turned toward us. When we've created distance, he's come closer. When we were far off, he saved us. Not because of anything we had done, but precisely because there is nothing we could do to get him to do it. That is grace. And if we understand it, we don't sit back in presumption. Yes, God loves me, so I will do whatever I want nor do we have to wring our hands and be stressed all the time like, oh, can I earn this? Or I better do more today so that I can actually be comfortable and and trust that he really does love me. We get to avoid all that mess. We get to avoid both sides of that thing and we get to simply say, I am beloved by the king. I'm his child. Nothing can separate me from him. At my absolute lowest He's committed to me, he loves me. Dwell on that, journal on that, pray on that, study on that, discuss that. And see if your life doesn't look radically different tomorrow than it does today. So are you imperfect? Join the club. Join the club. Don't pretend otherwise. And don't stress. If you're in Jesus, if you've trusted him, you are secure for eternity in his love. Not because you've earned it. Because that's just who he is. And that's what he does. That's the grace that's on offer. That you've grasped. And you can never lose it. Let that beautiful truth fuel your efforts to obey Christ and so love him. So there you go. What do we do then with the commandments of God? Do we have to do them to earn his favor? No, no. But if you, know, if you can recognize the love that he has for you, how could you not want to serve him? How could you not want to give yourself over to him? How could you not want to walk in obedience? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Let's love him. Let's love him because he's first loved us. If we do that, we're obedient to him and and so love him in our obedience, then that lets us become by the power of his spirit, his hands and feet in this world. We can actually be part, a foretaste of what he's going to do one day when he puts it all right. We get to be this little preview of it here and now. Even in this little church, Door of Hope Northeast, we get to be this window into this beautiful future that's coming. Amen? Do you not know him? Room this size? I presume there's somebody in here that doesn't that doesn't know Jesus. Maybe you check him out. Come and taste. The amazing reality that though the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Trust him today and receive a gift that can never be taken from you. A love that will never grow cold from him. A grace that can never be exhausted, but that will utterly, utterly change your life. Come find me after service if that's you. Love to pray with you. Grace of God is a mysterious, it's a confusing thing. It's easy to fall off one side or the other of it, but if we can glimpse it, if we can grasp it, there is nothing more beautiful and more powerful. Amen. Let's pray.